Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Tom Clockerty. Joining us today is George Selgin, a senior fellow and director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute and professor emeritus of economics at the University of Georgia. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, George. Thanks, Trevor. It's nice to be here. What is the Federal Reserve? The Federal Reserve is the United States Central Bank. What that means is that uh, it's the bank responsible for uh, determining what other banks do and the resources they have available for uh, their uh, activities. The, the Fed creates the ultimate dollars in the U.S. monetary system. Those dollars consist of the Federal Reserve notes everybody sees and they also consist of credits that banks can keep at the Fed, can have at the Fed, which is for that reason called a banker's bank. And those uh, reserve credits, so-called, can be converted by the banks into paper dollars anytime uh, the banks request it. So using these Federal Reserve dollars as an essential input, as it were, the banks go about their business of creating their own claims to dollars, making loans in dollars and creating deposits that are denominated in dollars that people can also spend. So does the Fed do this? I mean, does it have the authority over printing money and stuff? And, and, and is, does it decide how much money is printed or does it do it through some other mechanism? Essentially, the Federal Reserve decides the overall amount of Federal Reserve dollars, including paper currency and those credits I mentioned that banks hold at the Fed. The Fed determines the sum of those two values and by doing that determines the scale indirectly of all dollar creation of the creation of private uh, dollars like bank deposit dollars uh, because uh, the amount of those ultimately depends to some extent on the availability of the dollars that the Fed creates. I should mention because it's a common uh, source of confusion that the Fed doesn't actually print uh, Federal Reserve notes. That's done by the Bureau of Gra Engraving and Printing. But the Bureau of Engraving and Printing just acts as a, as, a, as a service or supplier for the Fed. But it's the Fed's policies ultimately that determine how, how many of these notes get put into circulation. Now, George, you haven't mentioned interest rates yet. I think if you ask most people, what does the Fed do? What is monetary policy? Well, they'd say the central bank sets interest rates. I don't think that's quite right, but if it's not, where the interest rates come into this story? That's the one thing people know. The one thing <laughs> interest people rates, know. yes. Yes. Well, it's the one thing people know, but it is really starting, as it were, kind of in the middle instead of the basics. The basics really do have to do with the Fed's creation of dollars. And uh, the reason interest rates come into the story is because uh, the way the Fed regulates the extent to which it creates basic dollars or the available supply of basic dollars uh, or uh, uh, regulates the purchasing power of those dollars, one, one or the other depending on the regime, is through interest rates that it manipulates or controls. So for example uh, – uh, the Federal Reserve before the crisis would uh, set a policy rate uh, and uh, it would uh, – that would be the rate at which banks could uh, borrow Federal Reserve credits uh, from one another overnight. So as I mentioned before, uh, 
some of the basic Fed dollars that are created consist of credits that banks have, deposits that banks keep at the Fed, dollar denominated, of course. And uh, in the old system, things have changed in a way I hope we'll get around to talking about. In the old system, uh, if banks uh, were short of these uh, uh, deposit credits uh, for their reserve requirements or other reasons, they could borrow. One of their choices was to borrow from other banks that had more than they needed. And that rate of interest at which that overnight interbank borrowing of Federal Reserve uh, credits uh, took place. Federal Reserve dollars was called the is called the federal funds rate. So that rate for years was the policy target rate, and so uh, the Fed would say, "Well, we think a good po- a place for the federal funds rate to be is let's say three percent, and if it crept up above that level." That would indicate that reserves were a little bit in short supply, and it would create some more dollars, put some more dollars into the economy, make reserves, uh, Fed dollars more abundant, to bring it the rate back down to the target of three percent. So, superficially, monetary policy was about setting the federal funds rate target. So it was about. It, not just interest rates, but specifically this one interest rate. Uh, but underlying this uh, uh, process or goal of keeping this interest rate on target was the basics of supply and demand for Federal Reserve dollars, for the dollars that the Federal Reserve alone was capable of actually uh, uh, creating uh, or removing from the system uh, if necessary. You you mentioned it's the the kind of the bank of the United States. Now, if you study American history and you you learn about the battles over the first bank of the United States and the second bank of the United States, is is the Fed like the third bank of the United States? Is is it kind of in the same vein as that? Or I guess I'm also asking, you know, where when did it come about? Where did it come from? In that kind of line of progression. Well, yes, according to most authorities, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, was uh, – is in effect uh, the third bank of the United States in that the first two uh, federally chartered banks, the first bank of the United States and uh, its successor, the second bank, they were at least proto-central banks. They had a lot – some things in common with a modern central bank like the Fed. Uh, they weren't quite full-fledged central banks in, in many respects, but they certainly were where uh, uh, had some features of, of, of modern central banks. And, um, and uh, that's why there was a great to-do about the establishment of the Fed because uh, the previous federal banks had been quite controversial and the second federal bank's charter had been famously uh, not renewed by Andrew Jackson who employed his veto power to, to – to, to veto the bill to recharter the second bank. And it looked like at that point we were – the United States was done with this idea of a federally chartered bank or a proto-central bank or whatever you want to call it. And it took some pretty clever political maneuvering uh, and several financial crises to uh, get central uh, – get us back to uh, having a, a central bank, to having the Fed, which was established in, in, uh, in 1914. Uh, There's a long story about the politics and the instability that informed uh, our taking up again this idea of having a central bank. It's a story I've, I've written about. Uh, but in any event, it took a lot of people by surprise – uh, to find back in 1914 that 
we had not, after all, uh, settled the question of whether we should have a central bank or not once and for all. Uh, we thought we had. Everybody thought so, uh, particularly the Democrats who were the party who got rid of the second bank in the United States. But lo and behold, they, they were also the party that decided to, to pass uh, uh, the Federal Reserve Act. So that period of time, roughly 80 years of no central bank – was that yeah, – about- was there – was there some huge gap or was there some institution that did the job or was that not that job not really needed to be done? Well, um, first of all, in principle, the job doesn't need to be done, uh, particularly if you have a, a, a specie or gold or silver standard, which was the case back uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century. When you have such a standard, first of all, you have a sort of basic money that doesn't inherently have to be supplied by public authority today, where our standard is paper money itself. Uh, of course, it's not something that's naturally scarce, so only a, a public utility, as it were, could could be relied upon to supply this stuff and, with luck, <laughs> supply so little of it that it doesn't become worthless. But when you have a species standard, in principle, you have a monetary standard that that doesn't requ- absolutely require a central bank. Now, the question is, can you have a, also a stable, safe? monetary and banking system without uh, a central bank? And the answer there is yes, you can. Canada here offers a particularly good illustration because until 1935, Canada didn't have a central bank, but it had the same basic gold unit, gold dollar that the United States had. It had a decentralized system. Multiple banks, commercial banks issued the paper money of Canada that was convertible into a dollar, a fixed amounts of gold, and it was a very stable, well-working system. So um, Canada's case is certainly suggests that uh, you didn't need to have a central bank. Of course, uh, the United States didn't have that same system. When we got rid of the second bank in the United States. Uh, what emerged from that step was not a Canadian type system, but a system that was a uh, a real uh, motley arrangement with numerous states. First of all, that had their own banking and currency systems, all of which were uh, quite different and uh, uh, involving different degrees of government intervention and regulation. Um, and uh, that was the situation until the outbreak of the Civil War. In those systems, some of them performed relatively well, particularly the ones in the Northeast uh, and some of the Southern systems, but others were uh, quite <laughs> uh, performed quite poorly. One of the things, though, that was common uh, generally. Uh, with the exception of a few southern states, was that banks could have no branch offices. That meant that there was no there was no paper money that was nationally recognized or uniform in value. A bank's notes could be well received and accepted at their face value locally, and maybe for some distance from their source. But if they traveled far away enough to other states, and uh, uh, then at some point they would. Uh, 
not be trusted or known enough to command their full value. So we didn't have a uniform paper currency. The only thing that was uniform was gold coin itself. If you took it or silver, if you took it to other parts of the country, it was still worth what it said it was worth. So Canada's system was quite different in that regard. They allowed their uh, note-issuing banks to branch nationwide, and most of them took advantage of that. And so by the 1880s, 90s, you had a, a system of bank notes with different brands of notes, but they you could take a note from Halifax to Vancouver still would be worth its face value. So the Canadian system achieved a uniform paper currency, uniform in the sense of uniform value, uh, uh, by allowing banks to be more free, uh, whereas in the U.S., our motley system of state bank regulations uh, prevented any such result from happening. That's before the Civil War. So do you need a – am I hearing correctly that it's better argument that you would need one of these if you have a fiat currency of some sort? But but when we when we started it, we were still on the gold standard from what I understand. Yes. My point is that if you have a fiat currency, since the fiat money only doesn't have a natural scarcity, so if it's going to command value, it's – Quantity has to be artificially restricted and that has to be a matter of policy and it isn't obviously something that you can rely on profit maximizing issuers to do because they might just want to issue a whole bunch at once and <laughs> get, get what they can. So um, – uh, in practice, if you have an irredeemable money, you need some kind of public authority that you hope you entrust with the responsibility of limiting the quantity of the stuff, of supplying it, but supplying it only in lim to a, a sufficiently limited extent. Um, and uh, and that's why fiat money systems require some kind of uh, central authority, usually a central bank. Uh, it doesn't follow, though, that that. Central banks have only been created in, 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 for the purpose of controlling fiat money. Central banking predates fiat money as, as you noted was the case of the Fed and it, of course the earliest central banks go much further back. The motivations for creating central banks in fiat – in sorry, in metallics money systems are quite different. The further back you go, the more obvious it is that the motivations were fiscal. Basically, these public authorities – could uh, 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 had a flexibility that allowed them to contribute to the financing of their sponsoring governments and, uh, and um, make make life easy for them, especially during wars, through uh, generous accommodation in return for the monopoly privileges that they enjoy. This was a story with the Bank of England, Bank of France. Then uh, uh, later on, uh, you you had the development of the view that uh, central banks could contribute to the stability of gold standards by serving as lenders of last resorts to the com commercial banks and by being a source of emergency loans to them. And this view particularly uh, uh, solidified after the famous uh, – after the uh, publication of Walter Badgett's famous book, Lombard Street, which which is the, the Bible of last resort lending. However, what, what was that? When, well, that was 1873. However, however, it should be said, and many people don't realize this, that when Badgett wrote uh, Lombard Street, he was referring, of course, to the Bank of England and the role it 
should play in uh, averting or con- uh, limiting crises. He was very explicit in that book. He said that the ultimate source of instability in the English banking system was the Bank of England's monopoly privileges in the way that they resulted in a concentration of reserves in that bank such that it became the only agency capable. It, it was both the instrument by which instability was generated and the one institution that could act to contain the damage from that instability if it would only uh, act in a public-spirited way by lending generously once a crisis broke out. But but Badgett was quite emphatic that if you if you hadn't had this monopoly heaping up of monopoly privileges in the Bank of England, if you'd had what he called a natural banking uh, system with reserves and privileges uh, spread out among competing banks, and an example, a contemporary example, uh, would have been the Scottish system, then you you won't need a lender of last resort because you won't have the underlying cause of instability in the first place. So, uh, unfortunately, most People uh, have read, most economists have read Badgett as making a positive case for central banks as lenders of last resort in a gold standard context. And of course, in the fiat money context, therefore, you have two rationales for having a central bank. One is to control the ultimate quantity of money, uh, uh, which otherwise is not self-controlling. And the other is to have a source of emergency funds when the uh, when things go awry in the in the banking system. And that's what we that's the conventional wisdom today. Yes. I mean, we've had the Fed now for 100 years or more. Um, and it's clearly changed an awful lot over that period of time. What monetary policy means in practice has really developed beyond all recognition. Um, and so I think we should probably bring this conversation a little bit more up to the present day. Um, in particular, the financial crisis of 2008. I know for me, and I think for a lot of people, that was when we really got interested in monetary policy, um, when people thought maybe there's something weird going on here and we should learn more about it. Um, so maybe before we just jump into that, though, um, Let's talk about what was the status quo before the financial crisis in terms of monetary policy. Now, you've already said um, the Fed would manipulate the federal funds rate. They'd affect the uh, cost of banks lending or borrowing from one another. Um, Why were they doing that? If they raised that interest rate or lowered it, what were they trying to do and what was its knock-on effect in the economy? So, uh, as you said, Tom, uh, the the Fed's responsibilities and power uh, changed dramatically since 1914 and by uh, the 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 period before the crisis for for some decades uh, of course the gold standard was no longer uh, part of the story so the fed had absolute responsibility for the overall amount of money created in the economy and therefore for controlling the rate of inflation and deflation. And the Fed's mandate required it to uh, 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 both to uh, uh, avoid uh, dramatic instability of the value of money, substantial changes in that value, and also to uh, limit unemployment. So the Fed had, as it were, a kind of secular mandate, a longer run mandate to make sure the dollar didn't depreciate too rapidly relative to goods, and then a a more cyclical mandate to make sure we didn't have cycles of unemployment, which which could partly be a reflection of a short run shortage of of money. Okay, that was my question. Yeah, yeah, that seems like something that's not related to monetary policy. No, it is. It is. Too much money, you get inflation. Too little money, you get deflation. Too little money in the short run, you can get 
on a, a, a downturn, a business downturn with unemployment until uh, either the central bank makes up for the monetary shortage or or prices adjust downward and we end up in the new equilibrium. But that's uh, a, a process fraught with difficulties. So actually, George, when we say there isn't enough money and in the short run that can cause a downturn, what does that practically mean, not enough money in the system? It's not like people can't find the bank notes. What it means is that people, in practice, what it means is that there there may be plenty of money out there, but but the money isn't isn't being spent. So so uh, uh, people people hold on to uh, money balances uh, to, to a certain degree, uh, but ultimately the main reason people hold on to money, which consists of Federal Reserve cash or certain kinds of bank deposits, uh, is to have a ready access to to purchasing power for spending. Um, Things go sour, monetarily speaking, either when the rate of spending is excessive, so there's too much money chasing after too few goods in the famous formulation of uh, Milton Friedman, or when the opposite happens, when spending uh, declines rapidly. And the reason these are both problems is because uh, uh, you want you, 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 businesses have to recoup their expenses on average. Some businesses may not, and others may profit. But on average, we don't want them all losing money, because that uh, just means that 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 doesn't prove that the businesses are bad or that we should be putting resources elsewhere. It, it just proves that spending is not keeping up with underlying costs. The spending is shrinking, so avoiding. Uh, a shrinkage in the flow of spending uh, is uh, important uh, as a as a way of limiting business cycles and unemployment and deflation. On the other hand, uh, if everybody is if people are spending more than ever, profits are swollen. That doesn't uh, give you a useful signal about uh, which businesses to support. You can't you can't have more of everything. You can have more <laughs> investment in everything. So uh, what ends up happening, of course, is. Costs start rising, the profits disappear, uh, costs keep up with prices. Um, the, in the equilibrium, there's an equilibrium that's the same as where you started, but the process of adjustment can involve some waste. And so this is where we get this idea that a good central bank will manage things so that uh, prices neither rise rapidly nor fall rapidly and uh, and cycles are avoided. But at bottom, it's really about stabilizing, not prices per se, but but spending, keeping spending on, an, on, a, on a nice uh, e- even uh, uh, schedule. This is this is what this is like before. So because from what I understand, this is still true. This, this is, is still yeah. true. But, but what I understand with the, so this is what they were doing before the Great Depression in the fifties. I mean, it was it was they were all well, they were still just mostly focusing the, on the, the the what you said the inflation rate and the unemployment. What I've just described is what they ought to do, oh, okay. uh, and it's still what they ought to do. It has never been exactly what they have done because they screw up all the time. You've had episodes of severe deflation like the thirties. Uh, you've had long periods of mounting inflation like the 70s and early 80s, 60s, late 60s. Uh, and of course, you've had the recent crisis. So what I was describing was an ideal, what, what they ought to try to do rather than what the Fed or any other central bank has actually been doing. And the ideal hasn't changed. The ideal was the ideal before 2008. It's still the ideal today. Um, now, the question then is uh, how did they – how did they try to do the right thing, whether they did it or not? And before 2008, to go back to that discussion of interest rates and all that, 
they used – what they would do was they would set a policy rate target. Now, basically what this means is that uh, they would say to themselves, well, we believe that if banks are borrowing from each other at a 3 percent rate, that's, that's going to uh, be consistent with an overall level of, of, of money creation, loan lending, etc., that will achieve our spending, stable spending target. Okay, implicitly that won't or that won't cause too much inflation or deflation. It won't cause too much unemployment. So the target rate is a rate that is kind of uh, uh, there. It's a it's it's what they believe is the rate that's consistent with achieving their overarching objectives. They might be wrong in their choice of this target rate, but. Let's assume that they actually are correct, that they know where that rate should be to keep things going smoothly. Then, of course, they, their objective, their media challenge is to see to it that the actual rate at which banks are borrowing from each other doesn't deviate from that target. And the way they would do that in the old pre-2008 days was uh, if, uh, if the rate – if the actual federal funds rate tended to be rising above the target – let's say above 3%, they would go out and purchase assets in the marketplace, usually government securities, and they would pay for them with newly created deposit credits, Federal Reserve credits, and that would mean that bank reserves become more plentiful and that would mean that the supply of federal funds, right, which is the reserves available for overnight lending would go up and that should lower the actual equilibrium funds rate and help get the target. Convert and that would lower the, lower the interest rate on borrowing and so – but that's theoretically right. encourage more house buying of houses and well, car would, loans. The and idea is that um, if, if the federal funds rate is getting too high, that, that, that also will tend to mean tightness in other lending markets. So in keeping it from rising, you're also keeping those other rates from rising. Uh, uh, and conversely, if the, the Fed funds rate is sagging, that suggests that that there's not much demand for federal funds. You want to keep it at target. You're going to withdraw some reserves because uh, evidently uh, there's more out there than banks need to uh, to sustain the target uh, interbank rate. And that's how the system works. It was a combination of setting a target interest rate that you hoped was the right target and then engaging in what are called open market operations, which is either buying government securities in the open market, having the Fed buy these securities or selling them uh, depending on whether they wanted to make reserves more available or less to achieve the target. If if doing all this, they then found that, oops, the inflation rate is higher than we thought it would be or lower or unemployment is not where we think it should be. That would, of course, be cause for rethinking the target they've been setting, adjusting it upward or downward, and then undertaking corresponding open market operations to achieve the new uh, and uh, hopefully correct rate target. So hopefully correct. Yeah. But did, did this process go completely haywire in the run-up to the financial crisis? Uh, I mean, if so, what kind of role did it play? I wouldn't say that the process went haywire uh, in the run-up to the financial crisis. Um, the financial crisis, of course, uh, is a situation where you can have 
and often typically do have an extraordinary demand for reserves, right? Because of panic, because of uncertainty, because of perceived risks of, of lending. And so suddenly, other things equal, the tendency is for banks to to uh, clamp down on lending, including interbank lending, and for the demand to hold reserves to become extraordinarily high under those circumstances. For a given federal funds rate target, the challenge of monetary policy becomes to supply that many more reserves to keep the target, the rate at that target, because otherwise it's certainly going to tend to rise above. So, so, so in a way, there's nothing different from a crisis situation. It's business as usual, except that it, it, it's a situation where in order to keep its target, the central bank has to create a lot more reserves than it normally would ever have to do, that is, than it would have to do in a non-crisis time. And, and until, until 2008, sometime in the middle of 2008, uh, the Fed uh, was, I think, more or less doing that. For example, uh, the first big shock of the of the crisis, a uh, big financial shock uh, that mattered from a monetary policy point of view, was when the uh, Bank Paribas uh, in, in, in France uh, uh, looked like it was uh, about to go under. And in response to this big liquidity shock, sure enough, you that, had – That term, liquidity shock, they just, they just can't get enough money right there at that moment. There's, that a, what, there's an exceptional demand to pile up uh, 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 bank reserves finan uh, uh, by different financial institutions, banks and other financial institutions want to stock up on, on – on, uh, on uh, cash, and uh, that is precisely the circumstance. It's, it means that they're that uh, they're less willing to lend cash, which means that interbank rates are going to go up unless somebody else makes more cash available, which is where the central banks went in. And that's just what the Fed did in that uh, episode. You can look at the statistics and you see the amount of Federal Reserve dollars uh, uh, spikes because they they're pouring more in to make up for the. The uh, reality that there's a uh, exceptional demand, and that is still ultimately aimed at keeping the target rate where it's supposed to be. Now, of course, uh, in the background, of course, you have the, the, the ongoing consideration of whether the target rate itself needs to be adjusted in light of these developments, because it may also turn out that you need to set that rate lower uh, uh, in order to. Uh, 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 accommodate uh, the changing reality that involves uh, a greater, once again, a much greater demand for, for, for reserves and liquidity. So the two things are happening. One, it takes more reserves in a crisis to keep the target wherever it is. And also a crisis is a time when your target rate might need to be lower, uh, lowered as a, a, a in in recognition of the the exceptional persistent demand for liquidity and and as i said until 2008 at least i think the fed's uh, conduct uh was was about right in light of these basic principles but then in 2008 things started to go quite haywire and uh and and did so i think because because of – not just because the crisis became that much more severe, which it did, but because I think the, the Fed made some very serious miscalculations that actually in turn contributed to the severity of the crisis. Well, some of those – I've heard some people have argued that some of those included low interest rates uh, after 9-11, uh, like too low of interest rates. 
helped move us toward the crisis uh, because people were borrowing too much. Well, and, now you're stepping back yeah, uh, a little bit. The, but I mean, so, so there I, is a question whether the Fed uh, set its targets too low, uh, not so much after 9-11, but after, after the dot-com uh, uh, crash, whether it kept rates too low for too long, set a tar- its target too low, and then, of course, acted to achieve that target. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And that um, setting too low a target in turn contributed to excess, excess creation of reserves, excess credit, excess lending, which uh, contributed to the, the, the subprime, uh, uh, what we know in retrospect was a kind of subprime bubble. And I think that's all true. The mistakes I'm talking about uh, are ones the Fed committed after the bubble breaks, which I believe it started to, to make some real mistakes uh, uh, in that case sometime in mid-2008. So what are those? Are they, are they related to just bad interest rate setting or, are they, or is ultimately, it a new thing entirely? Ultimately, they are. Ultimately, they are to 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 uh, to, to put it as tersely as possible. Uh, starting in uh, around mid two thousand eight, the Fed became uh, 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 determined to stick to what, in retrospect, was too tight a monetary policy stance to maintain a target interest rate uh, 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 that was too high relative to what was really required to help the economy. Uh, stay on its feet or or uh, avoid a collapse for some time they uh, set the target rate of two percent, which sounds very low and was low by historical standards and more typical norm would be four percent twice that however again in in a crisis situation, it can take a much lower target interest rate to 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 avoid a a downward spiral and I think in retrospect it's pretty clear that uh, the two percent rate that the fed was uh, was striving to maintain. Uh, was was too high. It it only very reluctantly lowered that rate first to one point five percent after Lehman, the Lehman disaster, and then eventually uh, as low as uh, uh, two point two five percent, or a range from zero to point uh, two five. By that by that time, it was too late, uh, and indeed, uh, even point two five was too high. But uh, but but it's it's interesting to uh, look back uh, at why the Fed was obstinate. Uh, or you know, and again, and this is all hindsight, right? So we mustn't be too ungenerous when when all this is going on. It's very hard to tell exactly what the situation is. But what seems to have been the case was at the time this, the inflation numbers did not seem to suggest uh, that uh, that the con- that monetary policy was too tight, and 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 there was there were genuine fears that that it might in fact be too loose. So you had uh, people pressing for the maintenance of 2%, arguing against lowering it. The the so-called inflation hawks were doing their thing. And uh, it was to satisfy that uh, uh, those concerns that uh, the consensus ended up favoring, trying to maintain uh, first two and then 1.5 percent. Even though if you look at what was happening at the time, whatever, regardless of the inflation numbers, actual spending was collapsing. And inflation numbers can very, be very misleading because they, they indicate a number of things, most obviously they don't just depend on how much people are spending. They depend on the 
state of availability of various goods and services and commodities. And so spending is really what you wanted to look at. And if you looked at spending, it was going down the, the, the uh, 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 going down very rapidly. But it's how the Fed uh, strove to maintain two percent despite what was going on that I think was particularly tragic uh, because in fact, uh, the Fed was creating reserves or would have been creating reserves during this period. These are the months leading up to Lehman Brothers and including at the time of its collapse. The Fed was engaged in substantial emergency lending to various banks through various lending programs, uh, banks and some other financial in, uh, institutions and markets. If If the Fed had simply done that, uh, it would ha- and not tried to compensate by other means, we would have had a substantial increase in reserves analogous to the increase when the Bank Paribus uh, crisis hit that should have uh, helped to maintain liquidity, keep uh, lending and spending uh, <laughs> from collapsing. However, because it was determined to maintain a 2% rate target, the Fed feared that these lending programs would create too many reserves and it offset them until Lehman's failure or after, offset them 100% with open market sales, which of course are normally a tightening measure. So it took back with one hand what it put in with the other. Total liquidity didn't increase at all, therefore, for these crucial months when spending was actually collapsing. You can see that the Fed's balance sheet doesn't grow at all. It's flat because there's more lending, but there's open market operations. That's the Fed selling treasuries from its portfolio to offset the loans that are otherwise increasing the total assets. And so there's no net liquidity creation in the this crisis it's, it's 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 much worse than bank paribus you you would think or <laughs> let's put a lot of liquidity out there cuz things are really getting scary and that's not what the fed's doing it is actually depriving the more solvent financial institutions in the marketplace of funds in order to 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 uh, move a greater supply of funds to troubled institutions that are taking part of in its emergency lending programs so that's interesting because it makes me wonder about why it makes these choices. Uh, is it is it politically influenced? I mean, is there something going on? It's supposed to not be, uh, even though the president chooses the the Fed chairman. Does it seem like that they're playing politics to some degree? Well, it's it's uh, there's no question that um, there's a lot of pressure on the Fed to aid particular financial institutions, especially the large ones, the too big to fail ones. That it's going to give them credit no matter what because it's it fears that if they fail, uh, the dominoes will start falling. The problem is that uh, be that as it may, whether those uh, decisions are sound or not. Um, it doesn't make any sense if you're concerned about other dominoes falling. So you want to prop up the one domino in the front of the line that you're most concerned about. You can't do that by taking credit away from all the other dominoes in order to prop up the first domino because then you're, 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 uh, uh, the, you're causing them to suffer liquidity shortage. Uh, so they may not be in trouble because the big domino falls on them. They're in trouble. 
trouble because you're taking liquidity away well, from the, them. All to the prop back up. dominoes are falling, even yeah. though the front ones are standing. And up. if we go back to Badgett, of course, uh, if we go back to Badgett, this is entirely contrary to the spirit of Badgett. For Badgett, the reason you need a lender of last resort is not to prop up the trouble institutions. It's to see to it that the sound institutions stay sound, that they don't suffer collateral damage from other failures. And in, and it's perfectly possible in principle for the Federal Reserve to lend generously in a crisis to sound institutions without depri- – instead of lending to the unsound by depriving the sound of liquidity. Uh, a second best solution would be create an in- a lot of net li- liquidity – Bail out some big firms, but make sure you keep the 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 other firms that are sound uh, from from suffering as a result of your policies. The Fed chose to do the worst possible thing. It propped up the insolvent or presumably insolvent institutions by uh, lending generously to them, but it was also. Uh, sucking back liquidity from the rest of the marketplace, which causes the crisis to spread that way. And if your goal is to keep the crisis from spreading, you're not going to do it by punishing the solvent firms to prop up the insolvent ones. And so that that the Fed started to go wrong in the middle of 2008. That's they right. They weren't increasing general liquidity. They were sort of bailing out some organizations. They were offsetting that by clamping down elsewhere. That's correct. And so spending in the wider economy kept tumbling. Kept tumbling. Did the Precisely. Fed eventually catch up with events? Did they realize they'd gone wrong and try to fix it? Uh, unfortunately, they really didn't. They did in the sense that they relented ultimately in trying to maintain uh, uh, what was first 2% and then a 1.5%. They, they, they stopped trying to do that. But they stopped only when they, they, had, they were failing utterly. The, the actual federal funds rate was just – falling below their target and the target became meaningless. So finally they said, okay, we're going to move our target to get it closer to where where we can uh, where the rates actually are and in that sense they relented and they loosened. But in fact though, uh they never they never actually provided the liquidity that by then the economy desperately needed and this is when things really get weird because um after the failure of Lehman's and also the bailout of AIG, they took another step. You see, by then, the amount of emergency credits that the Fed was creating were such that it could no longer offset the credits with open market sales. The Fed needed to keep a certain amount of treasury securities on its book for books for, for income purposes. It needs to be generating income, which you don't do by buying doubtful assets. You have to have assets that are paying uh, uh, some interest. So at a certain point, the Fed, as it were, ran out of treasuries with which to sterilize or offset the emergency lending. This happened after the Lehman uh, 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 disaster. But and, and now at that point, of course, uh, it might have just said, OK, well, we're going to have to let our balance sheet grow and let that contribute to liquidity. But they were still still determined to not let that happen, to not let emergency policies translate into easier monetary policy. And so they had to come up with a scheme 
other than sterilization to achieve that result. And that's what interest payments on reserves originally uh, served, uh, uh, the purpose that it originally served. The, on, the right for the Fed to pay interest on reserves was already on the statute books as a result of a two, two, 2006 law. But it wouldn't have taken effect until uh, 2011, if I remember correctly. So they passed uh, an emergency measure that essentially uh, allowed them to begin paying interest on reserves two years earlier than the original law would have. Uh, and that meant they could begin paying in October 2008. Now, what was the point of this? The point was now that the balance sheet's going to grow, how can we keep that from actually contributing to general liquidity in the marketplace and to an overall easing of policy? If we pay interest on reserves and make it, ad, make it ad, adequately remunerative for banks to pile up reserves, then the emergency – uh, the reserves we're creating through our emergency programs will – they'll go into the banks. They will add to net total reserves, but the demand to hold reserves will go up as well. And so the banks will just sit on them, just sit on them. And that will mean that it doesn't spill over into the Fed funds market and, of course, by implication, will spill over into other markets, other bank lending markets because the banks are going to hoard the reserves. This was deliberate. This was a deliberate uh, uh, move, once again aimed at maintaining what in retrospect was an overly tight monetary policy stance, whether it was 1.5 percent or whatever the number was, uh, because we still have uh, spending collapsing. And interest on reserves, then, uh, that became the new way of not easing monetary policy at a time when it desperately needed to be eased. And the irony of this, if I may, I know I'm going on for long, but this was October 2008. Remember, at this time, the concern is that policy is must not get any looser. It's 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 where we need it to be because there is some uh, potential for inflation. A very wrong perspective. And again, in retrospect, by November, by mid November, late November. It's now abundantly clear to everybody that policy is not too tight and that what the economy could desperately use is some monetary stimulus. So now um, you would think at that point that the Fed officials would say, OK, fine. Now we want monetary stimulus. We had better stop paying banks to pile up reserves because that's – something we've been doing to prevent monetary stimulus from happening even as we create more reserves. So logically, let's get rid of the interest on reserves. That's what you might think they would have done. But they didn't. They didn't. Instead, they decided that they were going to keep this interest on reserves in place and uh, uh, and the only new policy they'd pursue is that they would now more aggressively create reserves not just create them incidentally to emergency lending, but to create them on purpose and in vast amounts, quantitative easing, large-scale asset purchases. But wait a minute. Hold on. If interest on reserves served before then to make sure that however many reserves the Fed created, they didn't serve to stimulate bank lending and spending, why should it be any different that now that you're deliberately creating reserves – won't that just mean that banks have that many more reserves that they sit on? And we know that, in fact, that is exactly what it meant. As I put it in testifying to Congress in July, I said, you know, this, this, if, if, if insanity is thinking that doing the same thing over again 
will result in a different outcome than before, then the people at the Fed seem to have been a little bit off their rockers <laughs> because you have the same policy of credit expansion or reserve expansion that they have set things up so that it won't matter that they do this. It won't ease things. Now you're just going to say, well, if, we, if we're, we're going to leave that setup in place and we're going to create that many more reserves, but this time it will ease things. And, it, and of course, uh, something did change. Something did change, right? No, they weren't completely insane. So something had to change in their minds between October 2008 and late November 2008 uh, that allows them coherently to – somewhat coherently to believe that a balance sheet expansion that there that the system that prevented balance sheet expansion from providing stimulus until November 2008 is starting in December 2008 is going to allow balance sheet expansion to be stimulating uh I, 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 did i did i lose you on that no 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 i'm just i'm just cuz there's also an election in there uh, yeah, I don't think that had anything to do with it. I don't see October, November, Yeah, I don't think that had anything to do with it. But but the point is, well, it's certainly what's true is now they want to stimulate. They've got the same system in place that makes reserves pile up, no matter how many you create or why. But now they're going to say that creating the reserves, even though they still pile up, is going to stimulate. How do they convince themselves that things have changed? What's changed? What's changed is between October two thousand eight and December two thousand eight is they've got a new theory. They have a new theory. The new theory is theory of portfolio adjustment, et cetera. That's a theory of how large-scale asset purchases can stimulate the economy even if the purchases, the reserves that the purchases create sit in banks, vaults as it were, without moving. And so a theory has changed and because the theory has changed, reality should change with it. And this is – a little less than completely insane, but it is not completely sane either. So we've shifted from a system where if the Fed wants to kind of stimulate the economy somehow, they'll create bank reserves, the banks will be flush with cash, so they'll lend more, that will encourage spending. It's a fairly straightforward transmission. That's right. Now we're in a situation where we're going to give the banks lots of reserves, but we explicitly don't want the banks to lend them out. That's right. We want a portfolio balance effect to take place. What does that really mean? It means that um, as, as the Fed buys assets in large quantities, of course, the prices of the assets it's purchasing are going to be bid up and the yields of those assets will come down. And the idea is that if any interest rates change on any assets, that should have trickle-down effects through arbitrage, right, uh, that's going to affect other interest rates, including short-term rates, so that that you are, after all, putting downward pressure on short-term rates, but you're not doing it by actually increasing the uh, scale of, of lending and money creation that goes on. You're just, uh, as it were, uh, achieving a new equilibrium set of interest rates without any change in the nominal scale of activity, the total dollars moving around in the economy. Well, uh, this is where thinking of monetary policy solely in terms of interest rates becomes 
uh, dangerous because the right way to think about it is, yes, in, interest rates are instruments. They're means. We can think of policy setting as setting interest rates. But what we're really doing is changing the amount of, of money creation that's going on, that's that the banking system is engaged in, and that means more or less lending and so on. But if you start to think that monetary policy is only about moving interest rates where that's the ultimate objective, now now you can embrace a, poly, a, a portfolio balance theory where anything that gets interest rates, say short-term rates to go down, is great, even if it doesn't translate into an increase in bank lending, money creation, deposit growth and so on. Um, this is a big mistake. I'm not – it's true that, that these portfolio effects are not irrelevant. When interest rates change, prices are changing. Those are relative prices. So some economic activity is going to be changing. But gosh, if what you want is to get people to spend again, it's, it's, this is a much more loose connection. Uh, there's a much more doubtful connection between portfolio effect changes and short-term interest rates and just how much spending and lending are going on versus the old-fashioned adjustment in short-term rates that is cr caused by creating more uh, Federal Reserve dollars, getting them into the loan markets, getting more bank deposits created. That is a much more certain connection. Interest rates can fall in different ways and in some ways that the declines don't have much to do with overall spending activity and in other ways, in other cases, they do. And we've moved from a transmission mechanism that where the connection between lowering interest rates and increasing spending is pretty certain to one where the connection between lowering interest rates and increasing spending is, is, is quite uncertain. The defenders of QE or large-scale asset purchases at the Fed and elsewhere, what they'll do is say, we know this policy worked. Oh, how do you know that? Well, look, the interest rates changed. That's what their studies show. But if you ask them, and I have asked them, I said, well, okay, but did that come along with more spending? Did it reduce unemployment? Did it actually ultimately achieve the macroeconomic changes that, what, that we really care about because we don't care about the interest rate per se? And they would say, well, the studies on that are a little less clear. In other words, no, we have no evidence that that, that, that happened and I don't think it happened very much. It's, it's no secret that the, the recovery was sluggish. But um, but it is perhaps a somewhat well-kept secret that the, the that, that quantitative easing just didn't work very well when it comes to the things that really matter. So is the whole thing kind of quixotic and in, in the endeavor of the Fed? It doesn't seem to be – it's made a lot of mistakes, arguably the Great Depression in 2008. It's it's trying to figure out the right number in a very complex economy so you could criticize it on sort of Hayekian or Austrian grounds. That, you know, no one can really figure out what the right rate is or things like this. And it makes a lot of mistakes and sometimes those mistakes are cataclysmic. So is this the kind of thing that that is, is sort of too error prone to continue to exist in the way at least it does or, or you know, they're sort of in the Fed people uh, that it's just – it's not a – it's not an undertaking worth doing or doing well. Well, uh, uh, it's easy enough to point to the mistakes the Fed has made uh, and, and to argue, uh, as you say, along Hayekian lines that it's, uh, it's, 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 it's uh, unlikely that we can have a Federal Reserve that doesn't make mistakes like this because the, 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 both the information required and the necessary incentives are lacking for it to, to, to always 
to be expected to always do the right thing. But to get from there to saying, therefore, we shouldn't have a Fed, uh, you, you you can't just jump to that conclusion from those observations. You have to have an idea in mind of some alternative arrangement that is going to be capable of, of, of addressing these problems, that is going to do a better job of, of stabilizing the economy. Now, uh, I did say earlier that uh, in the past we had uh, systems like the Canadian system, the Scottish system that worked pretty darn well. But uh, they also depended on the existence of a reasonably stable uh, external monetary standard, uh, precious metal standard that was the foundation for the whole thing. And I also explained that if you if you don't have precious metal, uh, if you don't have a, a commodity standard of some kind, you, you've got to have a public authority that's ultimately controlling the supply of your fiat monetary standard. So uh, uh, we either have to go to some commodity uh, – it doesn't have to be gold or silver. It could be uh, it could be Bitcoin, which is a kind <laughs> of I've called it a synthetic commodity. But let's not get into a Bitcoin discussion <laughs> uh, for once. Uh, but uh, uh, but if you're not going to do that, and there are all kinds of reasons why uh, trying to get back to a metallic standard is a very difficult proposition. See our last episode with you. See our last <laughs> we'll link episode. it in the show notes. That's right. Um, then, uh, of course, you, you have to have a, uh, uh, at least a skeletal central bank that's responsible for the, the total quantity of fiat money. Then the question is, can we organize things so that it uh, arranges that quantity or manages that quantity in a way that's more satisfactory than, than what we've seen uh, uh, over the course of, of uh, the Fed's existence? And uh, and I think the answer is yes. We could. We could do a lot better. I uh, I uh, joined forces with the so-called mo- market monetarists in believing that first of all, our monetary policy should be oriented towards stabilizing total spending or statistically its counterpart of nominal GDP or something like that. That that alone would be a vast improvement because at least we're trying to do what we should be trying to do. Then it becomes a question of what are the right mechanisms for seeing to it that. Uh, nominal GNP is stable and I favor there uh, a a more automatic approach so that uh, we don't have to worry about uh, uh, Fed officials being distracted by other concerns, goals, interests, pressures. So uh, these are some of my thoughts. It would help to have a financial system that is itself less vulnerable to crises and there's a lot that can be done in that direction. But it doesn't consist of heaping more regulations on to what we already have. That's how we've gotten to the place we're at and it has not worked. It rather consists of appreciating what kinds of uh, uh, deregulation can uh, uh, help to uh, lead us to a self-regula- self-regulating arrangement and that uh, that that certainly includes getting rid of the promise of bailouts that is such a source of uh, a corrupting factor in our system. So there's a lot to be said about how we could do better than the present Federal Reserve arrangement. Uh, but saying why don't we just get rid of the Fed is not saying very much because it, it really just uh, uh, leaves you with begging all kinds of questions about what sort of arrangement is supposed to, to, to fill that vacuum. And so I think we have to think hard about uh, how we can uh, get from where we are to a better system and not not just think about what we'd like to get rid of (laughs) because that's only half the story. Thanks for listening. 
This episode of Free Thoughts was produced by Tess Terrible and Evan Banks. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.